We are starting a new series this week, as you probably already know, The Mad God. We oftentimes, especially if we grew up around church of some kind, we may have a picture of God as angry, at least in the Old Testament. We have this idea that God in the Old Testament is kind of ticked off, and then the New Testament, Jesus comes along and softens his image. And so we may feel like, well, the Old Testament God, he's much more judgy, he's much more kind of rough, and then New Testament things get better. And, and that's a perception that we, we may hold and we run into others who may have. And so we want to examine in the series, is, is that true? Because kind of come, what comes along with that is then we have this idea that because we kind of ticked God off, we made him mad, that now we're trying to kind of win him back. And so then we say, and then Jesus came along and, and helped us win him back, that Jesus kind of helps God not be so mad at us anymore so that, so, that he, so that, you know, we can get him back. And so we have this idea that maybe we haven't even thought about it too much consciously, but it's kind of just the picture in our mind of, a, of an angry God, and we're trying to, trying to lure him back by being good. And then Jesus, obviously, since we say, well, you know, you can't be good enough, so Jesus helps us win God back. So the question is, you know, we may have that picture, you may have that picture, even if it's kind of subconscious. The question is, is that, is that picture true? Is that what the Bible really says? Because so often we've come at this through, you know, churches and different stuff, and, and so we just, this is what I was always told. And of course, what we want to do is open the scriptures and say, well, is that what it says? Is that really how God has revealed himself in his word? So for the next five weeks, we're going to, for most of the five weeks, we're going to look at stories that if you've grown up in the church, might be very familiar to you. And if, and if you didn't and they're not familiar to you, well then, hey, you'll get to come at them fresh. But we're going to look and say, well, what does is, what is the word of God say? What, how is God revealing himself? What is the picture that he is trying to convey? So Genesis 3, of course, is a very well-known natural place. You can, even now in in a world where biblical literacy is, is plummeting quickly, most people still understand Adam and Eve. They at least know the story and the, the eating the forbidden fruit and the snake in the garden. These are still things that have a hold in our culture. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a few minutes to go through and look at a few notes from the passage, and then we're going to see what we find. Now, there's a ton of stuff in here. We can't unpack it all. So we're not going to grab all of it today. Probably could do five or six more series on this. But let's just look at a few notes. The first really kind of cool thing, and it's not a huge thing, but just a, an interesting piece of trivia is verse 8. Verse 8, when, Jesus, when, when God comes into the garden, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Some of your translations may, instead of say the cool of the day, may say like the evening breeze. It may talk about wind or something, say something about the, in the, 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 the night breezes or something like that. depends on your translation. The word for cool there, the word that's translated cool of the day, literally means breeze or wind. Okay, So the, the translator, translating, you have to do a little interpreting. What does the word mean? And so they, they said, well, the cool of the day. But the word that's translated for cool of the day could also mean storm. So an alternate translation of when God showed up was, it was an evening storm. Now, does that change the story? No, but it does change our perception. Because we have this picture of they heard 
and they ran and hid. But what if they heard, and the wind picked up and there was thunder? Well, gee, does God, any other places in the Bible, when he comes, is he heralded by a storm? Gee, can you think of any? Oh, maybe, like repeatedly. So it may be that, now they still hid, not because they were afraid of the storm, as we'll hit that in a minute, but it might not have just been that it was quiet. There may have been thunder. There may have been a storm. There may have been a, a gust of wind as the presence of the holy God, which up until now was not scary to them. So it wasn't that he was scary, but there may have been an impressive moment, except now they've messed up. So now, instead of an impressive moment, it's a scary moment because now they feel guilty. Why? Because they are guilty. And so when they hear the approach of the Lord, they run and hide. You say, which is it? I don't know. I'm telling you what the words say. We'll say, well, which was it? Well, when we get there, we can ask him. You know, you can talk to him, say, so was it you heard footfalls or you heard thunder? Either way, it doesn't change the story. Okay, second, this one's important. That one was just kind of a fun one. Verses 10 and 11. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And that, again, there was a noise, whether it's footfalls or wind. And I was afraid because, not because it was scary noise, but because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he, the Lord, said, who told you that you were naked? And of course, earlier in the narration, it says that they were both naked and not ashamed. The word here for naked in the, the language that we don't have is erome, or erome. It means to be innocent or naked. In other words, when you're innocent, there's nothing, you have, there's no uh, hidden way about you. Nothing is hidden. You are what you are. Bag of Humpty Dumpty potato chips. What you see is what you get. So it's, it's not just the idea of physical nakedness. It's the idea of without any guile, without any hidden way, just innocent. So the word carries more than just physical nakedness. Now, in the original language, this is a very well-written book. God does quality work when he writes. And there's a play on words that we totally miss in the English because it wasn't written in English. And so we miss this because in verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. The word for crafty is arun. That's supposed to be an M. Arun. Typo. So the N is an M. Arum. So you have Arum and Arum. Or Arume and Arum. So it's a play on words contrasting Adam and Eve and the serpent. And Arume and Arum is crafty. In other words, you do have something going on there. It's not a negative word. It doesn't mean <laughs> vile. It just means that there's more there's more than just one thing. It's not just innocence. Now there's craftiness. Now you've got, you're, you're wiser. And so it's contrasted between Adam and Eve that are just, they're just Adam and Eve. And they're arome. They're just naked. They're just innocent. And the serpent is arome, crafty. So it's, it's setting up a contrast for us to understand what's happening here. This is why Eve gets tricked because she gets outdone here. Both Adam and Eve are played here. All right, next one, verse 15. We have what we call the Proto-Evangelion. 
And that's just a, a good word to know for when you're playing Bible trivia or trying to win at Scrabble. Uh, Proto-Evangelion. It means literally proto, first, Evangelion, gospel or good news. So we call this the first giving of the gospel. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. It says the seed, and the word seed would, if you're going to use a pronoun for seed, would be it, right? You know, say, I've got some tomato seeds. I'm going to put this one in the ground. I hope he likes it. You wouldn't say that. It's a seed. It's it. But notice that here, the, the language says that the seed is not an it, it's a him. This is the promise of the Messiah. He will crush the serpent's head and get injured while doing it. It's a promise of Jesus. And it's very clear from the text that, Eve, that Adam and Eve got it. That it's not something that later we're reading into the text and going, oh, because Eve starts naming her kids after either weapons or salvation. Because Eve thinks, I'm going to give birth to this Messiah. I'm going to give birth to this deliverer. And it doesn't turn out that way. And after a while, the narrative kind of suggests that she realizes it's not going to be as straightforward as she thought. But there's a lot of suggestion that she thought maybe Cain was it when Cain was born. And who knows how that plays into the later dynamic. But this is a promise of the Messiah. He will come and he will crush the power of the serpent. Then in verse 16, we have another little translation thing. We read it as pain. It's not a bad translation at all. It's a good translation, pain. But it can also mean sorrow. And in verse 16, it says, To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain, or sorrow, in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then in verse uh, 18, speaking to Adam, second half of 18, cursed is the ground because of you, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The, the word there for in toil, he says, it's the same word that he used for Eve. We translate it differently because the context is different, so it suggests a slightly different meaning, but it's the same meaning. Pain, toil, sorrow. In other words, he says to Eve, when you produce children, now it's going to be a sorrowful or a painful exercise. And then to Adam, when you produce food from the ground, it is going to be a painful, a sorrowful exercise. So I wrote down pain in production because they both fall under the same curse. It's just applied differently. For her, as she produces children, it's no longer going to be a great experience. It's going to be tough now. It's going to hurt. It's going to have heartbreak. It's going to be sorrowful. And farming. Those are just the earth was just going to bring forth stuff. This is going to be fun. He says, now it's going to not. It's not going to, now it's going to hurt. Now it's going to be painful. It's going to be sorrowful. It's going to be work. It's pain in production. And then the second thing he says in the second half of 16, yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The word there for rule over you is not a, it's not a gentle word. It's a word of dictatorship. And so he's talking about your relationships are going to be affected here. You're, you're going to desire your husband, but that, that's not going to go well. They had been created as partners, and now that partnership is going to be corrupted. And so now, you, so basically, the, the, the things you do for work, raising, a, you know, having children, 
feeding your family, all that stuff. He goes, that's going to be sorrowful, and you two are going to have trouble. Well, here we are thousands of years later, and we can testify that this is true. We have a long history of this, including how women have been treated over the generations. The next big point is in verse 21. The Lord, made, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, they had already clothed themselves, right? But when you use leaves, you're on a clock. This is a limited time effectiveness. You better be home on time. You run late and things start wilting, you know? So God makes them suitable clothing, clothing that will be more effective. This is a theme, especially in the Old Testament. Don't lose your place, but turn over to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I have 10 and 11, but I only need 10. Isaiah 61, 10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks, decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. The Lord has clothed me in garments of righteousness. It, that, that there also calls to the, the priesthood, where to come into the presence of God, you had to be correctly clothed in garments and had to, to, to be dressed the right way. And then there's also the picture of, I think it's in Jeremiah, where there's a vision of the, the priest who had the dirty robes and wasn't supposed to come into the presence of God unless they were, so unless you are, what, washed clean. This, so this is an ongoing picture of the need to be clothed correctly. And here God starts that. He says God makes them suitable clothing. He clothes them. And then the last point, and this one's, this one's fun. This one kind of blew my mind a little. Verse 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. We're familiar with this. They are kicked out of the garden so that they won't eat from the tree of life. Now, what we do is we now add into that, and we don't realize we're adding into that. We know that there's a tree of life that gives life. Now, I don't know about you. If you did not assume this, that's awesome. What I always assumed is, man, if, they had, if they'd walked up to that tree and taken a bite of that fruit, zombies, right? Because now they'll live forever. Because one bite of the fruit and they'd live forever. It doesn't actually say that. It says that eating of the tree gives life forever. But what I realized is that it doesn't specify how that worked. After all, up until this moment, this tree had been accessible to them. Right? They were not forbidden from eating for this. I think they were encouraged to. And so suddenly I went, maybe they were supposed to eat of it regularly. It was a life-giving tree. Maybe you needed to keep eating. 
I mean, they had a physical body. Their body didn't suddenly become physical. They had the same bodies we do, just without the, without the sinful part of it. So maybe they, I mean, we don't know. The text doesn't say. All we know is they are no longer to have access to that tree because maybe they would have kept needing to eat from it. And God says, no, you can't have any more. You say, well, which is it? Well, I don't know, and neither do you. The text doesn't tell us. The important part is that they no longer have access to it. Well, how did the fruit work? Did you, could you just, was it a one-time thing, eat one fruit and live forever, or did you have to eat every week? I don't know. And neither do you. When we get to heaven, there's a, I got a new thing for my list. So God, I'm curious about the tree of life. How did that work? Was it a one bite and you're done? Or was it you know, weekly? Was this a sustaining thing? But either way, they are no longer to have access to it. But I hadn't thought about the fact that up until then, they could have. Now, don't do the thing that we tend to do as humans, which is we play stupid, stupid human games. We have a lot of stupid human games. But in this case, the stupid human game is we say, but what if? Well, what if it's a dumb, that's a dumb human game. Because, and this is the simple argument. Somebody say, well, what if? And I say, hey, I'll concede the argument. If things were different, they wouldn't be the same. Well, what if, what if they had done this? They didn't. And God knew what they were going to do. So we don't have to say, but what if they would have, what if they had, what if the day before they ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, they had eaten from the tree of life? What would have happened then? I don't know. Because A, I don't know how that tree worked. I just know that once they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, the other tree was now off limits. They were separated from life because it was no longer good for them in their state. It was no longer good for them. They had a choice between life and experiencing good and bad. And they chose to experience bad, which we're still experiencing. We still are struggling through the knowledge of good and bad on our own terms. And it blocks us from life. And that's the point. How did it work? Find out when we get to heaven. Let's apply. There's a lot we could go with this. But we're here to look at God. And so the first thing to take note of is that God does not react with wrath, but with sorrow. This is the big sin. This is the one that starts everything. This is the dooming of the human race. You'd think he'd be hot. You'd think he'd burn into that garden and start breaking things. Fire and just... And instead, what you have is going, where are you? Why are you hiding? What have you done? All right. And he's sorrowful. Listen to his language. This is, gonna, this is sorrowful now. There's pain involved now. Because you have done this. And he, he attaches it back to their, their actions. Because you did this, now this is going to happen. And so this idea that God is just immediately just flames and, you know, we, if you watch the, the Disney Hercules, you have Hades who just every time he gets mad, his hair catches on fire. You know, we kind of almost picture that of God. And here, this, if he's going to be raging angry, this would be the moment when the human race rebelled against him and, and, and shattered Eden. And you don't find any language of anger in there. Consequence, yes. Painful things, yes. He'd warned them. But you don't see heat. In fact, you see sorrow. As sorrow and hardship replace a full life and joy. It's like, well, now, 
because you've done this, now, now life's going to be different for you. Now as you are fruitful and multiply, whether it be humanly speaking or food speaking, now it's going to be sorrowful. It's going to be painful. The, the joy and the life you were supposed to have, you've now cut yourself off from. He told them, on the day you eat of this, you're going to experience death. You're going to die. But then here's the biggest part, the biggest part. So first, you don't see an angry God. You see a sorrowful God. Sorrow and hardship is replaced with joy. And God promises to correct the problem. But he does not ask man to. Read through the passage again. Go home and study it. And what you won't find is any command to the man and woman. As he discusses the resolution of the issue with the promise of the coming seed, the Messiah, at no point does he say, and here's what you need to do. All right, you've made a mess. So now, he says, I will do this. I will send the seed of the woman and he will crush the head of the serpent. He promises salvation. He doesn't explain how you're going to do it. He explains how he's going to do it. This is very important to absorb because we have this picture of a God who's like, man, I'd love you to get it straight. And yet, in the account that he recorded here, God begins his revelation with man's rebellion and God's desire to love, bless, pardon, and redeem. As he chooses, remember, Moses wrote this. this is the book, these are the books of Moses. This wasn't written by Adam and Eve. This isn't their diary. This was written far later, probably while they're wandering in the wilderness. And it's kind of explaining how did we get into this fix. And Genesis sets up how did we get here. And God chooses to begin the explanation of how did we get here with here's what you did and here's what I promised to do. And yet every religion on the planet, including ones that call themselves Christianity, say here's what you need to do so that God will love you. And yet God says, here's what I did so that you can receive my love. I will clothe you. I will provide salvation for you. And it's not a picture of, I hope you can get me back. It's a, it's a I want you back. And this is a fundamental picture that we must replace in our heads because I th really believe the devil, one of the biggest things he does is constantly try to make us forget the gracious mercy of God. How does he reveal himself? He says, I am the Lord God who is angry for a moment and whose loving kindness lasts forever. He's clear that anger is not his defining characteristic. Does he have anger? Yes. Does he have wrath? Yes, that's clear. But that is not what defines him. He says, my wrath is temporary. My loving kindness is forever. 
And herein is the first story where he says, let me tell you about how it started. And he starts with man rebelling and him saying, I'm going to fix it. I talked to a friend yesterday on the phone, one of the young adults in my life, young woman who was facing a hard thing. Called me up in tears because it was a hard thing. Very hard thing. She said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And of course, I'd already been loading this sermon into my head, thinking about it. I'd been studying all week. I said, well, start with this. You've got to start with that God has not put you in charge of his work. He has not put everything on your shoulders because his desire is to save. His desire is to love you and he is not waiting for you to become worthy. And so you, there is probably things that he would love to have you do. But those things are a result of what he's done. Not so he'll work. Because we have to start with the God who says, I'm going to fix this. I desire to save you. And we're going to see this over the next few weeks. But we have to start with this, because when we have a picture of God who's trying to get you to please him, that is not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible reacts to his creation rebelling by saying, I will deliver you. I will provide salvation. It is our job to accept it. It is our job to receive it. We are not trying to lure God back. We are facing a God who is trying to bring us back. And if you take nothing else away from this morning, every time you say, I think I messed up, I wonder if God's mad at me, remember that in the garden, God didn't hide. We did. God didn't hide his face. We did. And man in his shame hides, and God says, where are you? His desire is to bring you back. So we're going to celebrate here in a minute communion. Now, God didn't give us, as a church, a lot of things to do. I mean, he gave us a lot to do as far as spread the word. But as far as observational things that the church is supposed to do together, barely anything. We don't have elaborate rituals or anything else. He didn't have to say, you know, pray eight times a day and all this stuff. There's actually only two things that we've been given to do as a group together beyond the mission. The two things we're to do beyond the mission both relate to the mission. One is called baptism. We're commanded to baptize. Well, what does baptism represent? Accepting what Jesus did, right? The very picture why we do immersion is to picture the laying down of our lives being resurrected in Jesus. And the other one is communion. Why are we commanded to do this? Do this to remember me. So even this is not something we do so that God will love us. This is something we do to remember that he loves us. This is to remind us not of what we need to do, but what he did. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Do this to remember that. Everything he gave us is to remind us that it's not based on our effort. But what do we do? We turn into the, this into a good work that we need to do so that God will love me. I took communion today. I think God's happy with me. God's like, you know, it's, it's not about you. It's about me. 
I'm saving you. And I give you things to remind you of that. So we're going to do this. I'm going to play a song. It's called This My Soul by Grey Havens. I've used it before here. Some of you will remember it. I want you to look at the words. It tells the story of the garden and then the story of the cross and the empty grave. It's a reminder. And that's why we, what did we sing already today? There is a Redeemer, Jesus Messiah, wonderful, merciful Savior. Who would have thought that a lamb would rescue the souls of men? His body, the bread, his blood, the wine, broken and poured out all for us. The whole earth trembled and the veil was torn. Love so amazing. God is not mad at you. He has wrath over your sin. You have rebelled. His desire is to save you. He died on the cross so he could do that. He has provided salvation for you. He has done everything that it will take. You must receive. If you stay hidden in the garden, you don't receive it. He is not withholding it from you. You're withholding it from yourself. Oh, come to the altar. We're going to sing that next week. I'll talk about next week in a minute. Right now, I'm going to have Cody play the song. So what we're going to do as far as while the song is playing, take the bread, broken cracker, take the cup, and meditate on the words, meditate on what they mean, meditate on what this means. When we're done, hopefully you've done both. And we'll close up. Thank you, Cody. A voice came and spoke to the silence. The words took on beauty and form. The form took its shape as a garden was born. Then man from the dust came reflecting Oh goodness and beauty and light But he lowered his gaze as he listened to the face of low desires
been the perfect son of man. He took the place the voice had planned since the garden and before. He took the swords and cursed the grave. There's nothing more to separate us from the promise. The words of a living hope in this must. Because it perfectly sets up a theme in the Bible. Since by man came death. Since by one man came death. The first Adam. By his own efforts, he brought death on us all. But by man came also the resurrection from the dead. Jesus, the second Adam. Who now brings new life. And so the song first says, this is what you were born into. What this man, it comes to you. What this man has done, it all comes to you. What Adam did comes to us. But then it talks about the, the death and resurrection of Jesus and says, now what this man has done, it comes to you. Because now through God's provision, the seed came. His name was Jesus. He crushed the head of the serpent but was terribly injured doing it. The crucifixion. But in doing so, the power that sin had over us no longer has to hold you. It no longer has to define you. Will you struggle with it as long as you're here in the flesh? You're going to struggle with it. But it no longer needs to be your destiny because God loves you. So the only question is, will you receive it? Will you pass from the death that you inherited into the life that you've been offered? And you have to choose. Now next week, we're going to look at a worthy offering. If you're ever told that it's very important that you've got to dress up for church or do things a certain way because we're walking into the presence of God and He demands the best. If that's ever been part of your experience, which many of us, it's just, you know, obviously God wants only the best. Well, we get that from the Old Testament. So we're going to look at the sacrificial system. We're going to look at the perfect lamb. What is a worthy offering? What are the demands of God? And we're going to look at what the what does the Bible say? And why does it say it? What is God telling us when it comes to a worthy offering? So I hope you'll come back next week or tune in online. In the meantime, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your grace and mercy. We are a sinful people. All we, just like sheep, have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to our own way. We do not deserve your favor. We do not deserve any kind of forgiveness. We do not deserve to be treated well. We do not deserve to be forgiven. And yet, because of your great loving kindness, 
because of that, you have dealt with your own anger and crushed our rebellion and the one who led us into it and provided salvation for us. Lord, may we first and foremost realize that you're the God who, unlike the pagan gods we create, sometimes even out of the Bible, that demand that we somehow please you, that we somehow appease you, that we somehow do things to earn favor, that we cannot earn your favor, and yet your desire is to pour favor upon us, and so you have promised to provide for our return. You call us out, of, out from behind the trees and out of the hiding and into your light. So, Lord, if we're dealing with shame, may we see that go away in the presence of the shed blood that you shed for us. If we fear your anger, may we have peace because of what you have done. And then, Lord, I just pray that as we go out this week into this community, into our nation, into our marriages, into our family relationships, into our work relationships, into our civic and social relationships, that we would be pictures of you. We know that our world is full of people who do not deserve grace and mercy. They do not deserve favor. They do not deserve to be treated well. Same as we. And may we be pictures of you, a friend of sinners, kind to rebels, not because you're not angry, but because your loving kindness lasts forever. And may we explain both first through how we treat them, and then when they wonder why, we explain you, that you desire to save that you desire to forgive, that you love us. Wonderful, merciful Savior who died for our sins. We celebrated that this morning to remind ourselves of that. May we live it this week in ways that is visible to those around us. May that be who we are as a church, as your church, as your people, the body of you. Thank you, Father, for your salvation, for your great love that we did not deserve. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good day.